this morning, our sermon portion of the service, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're immutable, that you never change, that your provision to meet our need remains constant, that the only question in the whole equation is whether we'll trust you in those moments of life, those hard things in life and the good things of life. In the good times, will we see that ultimately that's the time to have our focus on you and see and rejoice and celebrate that those things are from you. In the hard times, can we rejoice and celebrate knowing that you've promised to work all things together for our good, even hard things, that you're faithful and that your goodness doesn't change even though there are hard things in life. Pray that we would learn to more and more so trust you more with every moment of life, the good and the bad, at least from our human perspective, as we know that that's not necessarily how you see things. But pray that we would just progressively over time draw nearer to you, that we would grow and mature in our faith as we see your faithfulness in certain things, that we would then have more dependence and trust in you in the next things that come along. Pray for even this service this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather. Pray that we would see what a blessing that is, that that isn't necessarily true in other parts of the world. Pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, that we would celebrate and be thankful for uh, having the freedom to do that. Pray that that would continue in this country, that we would have religious freedom, that we would be able to meet and gather in open and in public and to proclaim your name and to lift you high and to hold up the things that you value and to shine a light in a way that would attract people to the truth of who you are and what you've done for a lost and dying world. Pray that we would be good ambassadors for you, that we would have a concern about our testimony, that we would see that nobody can see your light if we're covering it with bushel baskets. Pray that we would want to remove ourselves from that equation so that you could shine more clearly in our lives. Thank you for all of these believers that are here with us. Pray that we would enjoy the time of being around each other and even the fellowship and camaraderie that comes with that. Pray for those that, who can't be with us this morning. Some of them haven't been able to be with us for quite a long time. Pray that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would comfort them, that you would remind them that despite uh, being unable to get about and to come out to church like they want to, that you still love them desperately, that you've provided and undertaken to meet their every need, that you've never changed at all, and that you can give them the comfort and the grace they need to get through these trials that they're facing in life. Pray that you'd even undertake to heal some of those that are going through various physical uh, problems and concerns, if that's your will, that you would undertake to give wisdom to their doctors so that they could make wise decisions about their medical treatment, but that through it all, you would be glorified and lifted up and the spotlight would remain on you. Pray for the Sunday school teachers and myself teaching this morning. Pray that you'd give us wisdom so that what is said is accurate and clear. And probably more importantly, even that in addition to being accurate and clear, it would be impactful on those that are here. Pray that everyone who comes here this morning would set aside whatever else has been consuming their minds or that they've been obsessing about and that they have open minds to take in your truth so that they can have their minds and their thinking renewed by your word because it's the entrance of your word that giveth life. It gives understanding to the simple. Thank you for those promises. Thank you for this church. Thank you for every one of these believers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, the title of our sermon is Goodness and Mercy Pursue Me. Goodness and Mercy Pursue Me. 
We're the equivalent, I guess, of being at third base making a sprint here for home plate. We're, Lord willing, going to try to get to the end and finish up our mini-series here on Psalm 23. Again, I understand that comes down to your definition of what mini is. I think this is our 11th or 12th service here in Psalm 23. But in any event, Lord willing, we're going to seek to get to the finish line today. Psalm 23 has been one of the most popular psalms of all time. It's one of the most known and most well-regarded portions of Scripture by in Christendom going back to the beginning. The reality is that even in our country, if you ask certain people who identify themselves as Christian what some of their favorite passages are or some of the things that they are most familiar with, many of them have heard about this psalm. Some of them because it's been even a part of popular culture. It's worked, it's, some of the lyrics have worked their way into secular songs. I got one laugher in the back. Uh, there's a part of this song that I, I remember as a kid that talks about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's sort of the cadence of how the song goes. But they're stealing straight from Psalm 23. And so it's a popular psalm, and that's partially why we chose it. Um, also partially, the main reason was because we had studied this with our young people at camp, and it had been so encouraging to me there, I thought it would be encouraging for our whole church body, and it would give us a little bit of a break from our study in First John before the plan, at least for now, was to go into Second and Third John. So that being said, we've been working through this psalm, and we've been observing that the primary theme of this is that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing and that summary statement or conclusory statement in a way, but it's a, it's a preview of what's to come. But that statement of purpose is found right there in the first verse, that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And then we've spent the rest of our time since then looking at nine specific examples of what God's complete care for his children looks like. So if the Lord being my shepherd, if the result of that is that I have been provided with absolutely everything I need in this life, both in terms of my physical needs and in terms of my spiritual needs, although the emphasis, of course, being my spiritual needs, God hasn't cheated me. He hasn't left me hanging, in a sense. He's provided me with absolutely everything I need. And so we've gone through the details of what some of that complete care entails. And as we've done that, we've looked at two different illustrations. I'll summarize them in a second, but the illustration of a shepherd providing for a sheep and then a a loving host providing for his beloved guest. And so we come now to the sixth verse of Psalm 23, and it serves as a summary or a bookend or a conclusion, however you want to look at it, to this psalm. In verse 6, it functions as a climactic crescendo, if you're using sort of musical terms. There's this crescendo of these poetic illustrations, and they all climax. So verses 2 through 5 have been these poetic illustrations or these metaphors to describe God's complete care for his children. Then the psalmist here, David, climaxes that in a poetic way with this crescendoing kind of a statement that he makes here in verse 6, which serves as the summary or the wrap-up or the conclusion, however you would want to phrase that. So we've observed and considered David's poetic description of God's children as both sheep and guests. So in terms of wrapping this all up, he started with a statement, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He then gave a bunch of illustrations about that from the context of a shepherd and a sheep, and then from the host and a guest from those two perspectives to illustrate those points. And as David has 
described poetically God's complete care for his children, he's done that in a very personal way. And we've talked about that at length as we've gone through this psalm. And hopefully, as you've gone through this, or if you've been a part of this, you've personalized these phrases. You've seen the personal nature of David's relationship with God, and you've stuck yourself in there. You've inserted yourself into that. That's why God writes things this way, so that we will see that he's an intimate, detail-oriented, oriented personal God who is a relational God who wants to be living life with us. And so when you see that personal intimacy that David communicates through the language he uses of this poem, you see then that God wants us to see him that way also. And so as we've gone through these phrases, we've considered, we've reflected on God's past faithfulness, we've reflected on God's complete care in our own lives. And I hope you've been going through this sort of inserting yourself mentally into each of these different clauses. Now, the first illustration we saw in verses 2, 3, and 4 was this illustration of being a helpless sheep. Now, as helpless sheep, we enjoy the Good Shepherd's provision of rest, nourishment, and refreshment, even in the barren landscapes of life that are often devoid of such things. So we see that with some of these first verses, verse 2 here. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He makes it possible for me to lie down in a place of rest that is also a place of nourishment. He leads me beside the still waters, a place of refreshment. So as you look around at life, I hope you've been inserting yourself in there as, you've, as we've read that over and over. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. I hope you're putting yourself in that me there. It was me on your mind. And so as you do that, I hope you're seeing in that that comfort that comes from knowing that God is in control and God provides even in the face of a world and circumstances in life that appear bleak at times. You know, when you look around at the world around you, it looks barren. It looks like a wasteland. It looks empty. It doesn't always look like green pastures and still waters, does it? That's why God has to remind us that even in the face of whatever it is that we're going through, when we're going through it with Him and we're realizing the blessings that we have in Him, even though things on a human level may not be going as well as we would like, that he's still, even in those moments, he's making it possible for us to lie down in green pastures, to find rest and comfort even in those hard things, that our souls can still be refreshed even when our bodies cannot. When we cannot find that rest as the chaos of life has run us ragged and we're actually desperate for some physical sleep, that spiritually speaking, God is still in a position to refresh our souls with the still water even in those moments in life. We saw in verse 3 that as a helpless sheep, we experience his restoration when we stray and wander. It says, he restores my soul in the first part of verse 3. Then it says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As helpless sheep, we follow him through deep ravines, dark valleys, and barren hillsides. But we do that without fear or concern, knowing he is present. So he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And at times those paths, those right paths, they lead through dark valleys, through deep ravines, through barren hillsides. As I walk through those valleys that are lifeless, the shadow of death is how they're described, I fear no evil. And the reason being, for you are with me. So though I'm a helpless sheep, though I see myself as God intends me to see my shelf, see myself 
as hopeless and helpless apart from him. Yet when I realize that I'm with him, that he's caring for me, directing me, providing for me, that he's protecting me, that he's correcting me, as I see him doing all of these things, I don't have any fear because I rest in the fact that he's with me. See, as helpless sheep, we find comfort in the protection, direction, and correction his rod and staff provide too. So we see that in the next part of verse 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The last part of our shepherd sheep illustration there. So as helpless sheep, we see this complete care that the God of the universe has for his children as we take all of those things away from David's psalm here, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. The takeaway, though, still always comes back to verse 1, though. That's the summary statement. In every situation, the shepherd is faithful to care for his own. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. In every situation, the shepherd is faithful to care for his own. So then we moved on and we saw this idea of a loving host and his treatment of his beloved guest. And verse 5 focused on different aspects of that. So now we change the illustration. And as beloved guests, we experience the complete care of our loving divine host. As guests in God's home, we realize an even greater measure of intimacy than than present in the shepherd and sheep illustration. So think of that. You know, on one hand, shepherds certainly probably love their sheep and care for their sheep. On the other hand, sheep are a way to provide a livelihood for the shepherd. The shepherd is caring for those sheep in one hand from a sense of altruism, but on another hand from a sense of just self-centeredness and selfishness. He needs the sheep to thrive in order for him to be successful. And so there is a picture of intimacy there in the terms that the sheep are helpless. And that's why David uses that illustration because he wants the reader to see there's absolutely nothing a sheep can do to care for himself. And in many instances, sheep, especially if they're not being raised to be eaten, but are being raised for their wool, the shepherd develops a closeness and an intimacy with those animals just like you would with Fido or your favorite cat. I'm working on that myself with my own dogs. You grow close to them, though. No matter how irritating they are at times, the more time you spend with them, the more affection that you naturally have for them. And that lasts right up into the time where they destroy something, and then you kind of go backwards and you have to work back up to it again. But as you think about shepherds and sheep, some of them have very close relationships with their sheep, but the whole level of intimacy shifts when you start thinking about a loving host welcoming a beloved guest into his home. Now we've taken this away from an animal relating to a shepherd and we come to this two people that have this intimate relationship with one another and they have this shared love and affection for one another. Another, of course, the focus being on the ability of the host to provide for every need of his beloved guest. So it takes another step up, if you will, in this picture of intimacy as we see God's provision, God's protection, and God's presence. And so we enjoy that. We see that with, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. We see the provision of God as he prepares a table. He anoints my head. He makes my cup fill to the point where it's overflowing. 
We've been talking about that, of course, most recently because that's leading us up to this sixth verse. But then we also see that it's his presence that is what gives me peace and comfort in the face of my enemies. There's the protection there as I don't have to be concerned with my own protection as I'm under the care of the loving host, the one who loves me and is able to provide for me both the things that I need in terms of physical sustenance and refreshment, but also in terms of providing me protection under his roof or under his tent, in his tent from my enemies as he assumes those responsibilities. I no longer have to worry about protecting myself. And then the intimacy that comes with sharing a meal and fellowshipping with the one who has undertaken to provide a lavish and gracious and abundant meal to meet the needs of his beloved guest. And it's such a beautiful picture that we see. The present enemy's trials and turmoil of life fade into the background as we picture ourselves as beloved guests of the loving host. We receive abundant, generous, and endless blessings as our heads are anointed and our cups overflow. We rejoice in the goodness of our loving host. And that gets us to verse 6 here. Verse 6 now summarizes with amazing brevity the totality of God's care and blessing. It's unbelievable how well David, and in how few of words, David wraps up this sense of being this overjoyed, rejoicing kind of an individual who's under the care of the God of the universe. And how he puts that into words. How I have to worry about nothing, fear nothing, I, have to, I, I need not be concerned about anything because God is for me. God is good. God is on my side. God loves me desperately. And God will provide and undertake to meet my every need. He will deal with every care completely that I have if I can just rest in his provision for me. So he says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So as we unpack that a little bit more here, This morning, we start with this first phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You could skip over this word surely, but I'm not going to. This word surely carries this idea of certainly or definitely. Certainly goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, if you say it like that, do you hear the confidence in the voice of, the, of David, the psalmist here? Do you hear that confidence as when you say, certainly or surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? It's very similar to our definition of biblical hope. When one says that their hope is in the Lord, it's not a maybe this will happen kind of a hope. It's a confident expectation that God is a faithful God. God will keep his promises. And when God says, I will care for you in every way, that I will never leave you or forsake you, that I'm a good God and that I'm for you and not against you, that I have undertaken to provide you with a life both now and in eternity that will be abundant, that will be overflowing, that will be impossible to even wrap your mind around, that will exceed even your best guesses or ideas of what things could be exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could even ask or think. That that's the kind of God I am. That that's my character. And when you appreciate that and accept that and take that in, then you could have this posture that David has in this statement saying, certainly, this is certainly true. This is definitely true. 
And you see that confidence is directly linked to past personal experiences with God. What I mean by that is you may not be in a position this morning to say, certainly God's goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You may have to use a term that's less definite than that, that's less confident than that. Where you're at in your faith walk right now, you may not be absolutely convinced that God is good, that God is merciful, that He has tender loving kindness that He's going to bestow on you in every day for the rest of your life. You might be taking a posture mentally where effectively you're saying, perhaps goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The question is, how could you get to a place where you could say it with confidence? The only way you could say it with confidence is if you reflected on God's past faithfulness in your life. The only way you could reflect on God's past faithfulness in life is if you had some personal experiences with God. How, how, other than living life with Him and watching Him work in your life and then reflecting back on how He's undertaken and directed and provided and protected and all of these things that we've been going through here, other than having gone through some of that with Him and then looking back at it, how could you ever develop that trusting confidence, the trust in you that we've been, we sang about this morning? Well, you couldn't. The reason you can learn to trust is because you've tried him, you've tested him, and you found him to be reliable and faithful. I've given you the opportunity to come through in my life, Lord. I've done a trust fall, if you will, into your arms. I've allowed myself to collapse backwards into your arms, and I found you to be faithful. And as I found you to be faithful in that instance, as I was willing to trust you in that moment... Well, now I can say with certainty that your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But until you're willing to collapse into his restful arms, until you're willing to picture life as somewhat of a series of divine beanbags all around you, where when life gets difficult, you can get your eyes off of your circumstances and you can decide to just take a, take a dive into one of those beanbags, collapse restfully into one of those. Who's ever done that? Is this just me? A beanbag, right? It's big, plush, soft. You ever just collapsed into one of those? Okay, maybe not. Let's, let's use something more common. You've got a, a soft, comfortable bed. Who's just collapsed into bed this week? Who's been running ragged this week? A couple of hands, all right. That's common, right? That's, that's life. And as you run yourself ragged, you finally come to the end of the day, you have either literally or metaphorically where you just collapse into bed and you welcome that rest that comes from finally letting go of some of those things. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's the kind of God we have. He says, I want you to collapse into my arms restfully over and over and over again. But the thing, friends, is if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you'll never do that. You have to learn to do it. Now, maybe you, st- you start with something smaller. But as you see him be faithful and catch you with the small things, where maybe you're just stumbling, you're not actually just, I mean, to just fall backwards, I don't know how many of you have ever done a trust fall, but just, to just let yourself fall backwards, that is a weird feeling, isn't it? Because human beings love to be in control. When you give up control, that's what it means to trust. 
You're not trusting while you're maintaining control of the circumstance or the situation. Trusting is to let go completely. So letting go of every single thing or every single dream. I lay each one down at your feet. It's letting go that is the definition of trusting. Can you let go? Well, you won't let go until you taste and see that the Lord is good. He's a good God. You have to taste that by seeing it and taking a bite of it. As you come to these things of life, take a giant bite out of him so that you can see his goodness, you can taste his sweetness, you can see his provision for you in those hard circumstances in life. We've got to move on. But surely, now what are the two things, the two focal points here? Goodness and mercy. Let's start with goodness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But goodness refers to things that are pleasant, desirable, pleasing, valuable, and useful. Now you think about that. If God is good, then the things that he provides to his children are valuable, useful, pleasing, desirable, and pleasant. But they're useful. I think that's probably the most important thing is that God provides his children. If you want to think of him as being a good God, he provides his children with what's useful or what's needed in that circumstance. And you think about goodness, it's a reflection of God's very character. And if if God is good, then it's reflected in his care for his children. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, for the Lord is good. You could put an equal sign there. The Lord equals good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. The Lord is good. So if he's good, and that's as much a reference to his being perfectly right, but if he's perfectly right, then he knows exactly what we need. And so as his goodness is reflected in my life or reflected in his care for me in my life, it's always going to be things that are useful and valuable to me. So when you think about the things that are following you all the days of your life, are there some things that are following you around that aren't useful, that aren't good? (laughs) Some things that you've been trying to let go of, but they keep like a shadow, they keep kind of chasing you around and following you around in life? Are you picturing this? What do you have kind of following you around in life that you've been wanting to let go of? You've been wanting to kind of say goodbye to. Do those things have a way of following and chasing after you too? They do. Because Satan is powerful. The world is powerful. The flesh is powerful. We're in a spiritual battle. Those things are pursuing you in a sense too. And God's saying, I want you to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares you or besets you. I want you to let go of those things. Cut the rope to those things. Let those things fade into the background. And I want you to run with endurance the race that is set before you. But as you're running with endurance the race that is set before you, it's characterized by God's goodness and mercy pursuing you. As God says, I'm going to be the one who is constantly undertaking to make sure that everything you need, every blessing that you need, is overflowing. It's abundant in your life. So don't let go of those things, but let some of these other things go by the wayside. You can't help but thinking about that as you're thinking about these things that are hard to let go of at times. God's saying, don't focus on those things. Focus on the things that are useful and valuable that I'll provide to you. 
You see, the Bible says that God is ultimately the source of anything good in the believer's life. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It comes down from the Father of lights. We're about to talk in the next part of this verse about the Father's house. It's the Heavenly Father that provides the things that His children need. He provides for the complete care of His children. And one of those things is things that are good, things that are noble, things that are useful, things that will benefit you. And those are the things that are chasing after you, which we'll see in a second. The other description here is mercy. So the two things that God undertakes to make sure are pursuing you all the days of your life are goodness and then mercy. And the emphasis of this word mercy is God's compassionate disposition toward believers. The word is often translated as loyal or steadfast love or loving kindness. If you looked at basically any version of the Bible with the exception of King James or New King James, almost every one of them translates mercy more often than not as steadfast love or loving kindness. Uh, when Pastor Weefel used to describe his describe this word mercy, God's tender loving care and compassion or kindness, something along those lines, is how he was there. Tender loving. Tender love though. His tender loving kindness and concern and compassion for his children. There's so much more in that word mercy than what some people define it as. Some people define mercy as God withholding judgment that we deserve. There's so much more to it than that. It is true that on one hand, God is merciful and mercy can include at times graciously giving people, forgiving people or not doling out the full measure of the consequence or the punishment that they deserve or the justice that they deserve. So you can see that in a court context where somebody would ask a judge for mercy. In that instance, it's to withhold the full measure of punishment or judgment that is deserved. So there is that aspect to the word, but when it comes to the word of God, it's not about the, the action, it's about the motivation behind the action. So when we see this word mercy, yes, mercy can at times include God's grace, God's grace meaning not, with, not judging us as we ought to have been judged, but instead providing a way for us. We'll get to, to that in a second. So there's that aspect of it, but it's the motives behind it that are actually the focus of the word. The motive behind it is God's enduring or steadfast, loyal love for us. His loyal love for us. Well, that steadfast love is the kind of love that never fails. It never wavers. It never changes. Now, I'll tell you what. That the only kind of love that is loyal and steadfast, it has to be divine love. It has to be sourced from above. Because human love isn't like that. Human love fails. Human love is conditional. Now, we might think it's not, and at times it might not be. There's aspects, as especially if we're children of God, where we're allowing His kind of love to start to permeate into our own definitions on our working applications of what love is. As God's love starts to make changes in us and makes us more gracious and makes us more forgiving and, and allows us to love in spite of what others have done to us or what their behavior has been. So there, there's, it's true that parts of that come in there, but it won't be steadfast and loyal. To be steadfast and loyal means to never fail. Human love isn't like that. Human love reaches a breaking point. Human love, at, at some time, it becomes conditional or it becomes reciprocal based on what somebody has done for us. 
And so I will respond in kind. I will respond to you as you have responded or treated me. That's how I'll handle things. And that becomes our definition of love. But God's love is steadfast love, unmoving love, unchanging love. And so that's why it has to be mercy as defined as loyal and steadfast love. It has to be sourced in the divine. And we see that that's what we're really talking about here in this summary statement is that surely goodness and mercy sourced from God, provided by God, are going to follow me all the days of my life. So we see shall follow me here. Now again, you have this word shall, which sounds a lot like surely. There's another word here that communicates this confident expectation. He doesn't say perhaps. He doesn't say maybe or might. Perhaps goodness and mercy might follow me all the days of my life. Wouldn't that really change, take some of the wind out of this passage? It wouldn't make it quite as confidence-inspiring, would it? It wouldn't make it as encouraging to think that God's goodness and mercy perhaps might possibly follow me all the days of my life. But that's not the perspective of a child of God. A child of God has a perspective of confident expectation when it comes to the faithfulness of his God because God's character is immutable. It doesn't change. God is always dependable and reliable. So it shall, and that's all I'll say about that, but it's another, another word of this confident expectation. Now follow. The literal meaning of this verb is pursue after. So surely, goodness or certainly, goodness and mercy shall pursue after me all the days of my life. You know, pursue after has a lot stronger feel to it than follow me. Following has this sort of passive, distant kind of a thing where, you know, some... Sometimes little kids do this with older kids that want to, they want to play with the older kids and the older kids can't be bothered by the little kids because little kids are not cool. You know, even though they were once a little kid, they've already forgotten that. Some of you older, older kids, by older I mean all of you, just remember that. Yeah, the younger people need your attention and affection and your willingness to come alongside of them in life too. But sometimes you can see that where the older kids don't really want to play with the younger kids. And so the younger kids are kind of trailing after them in the distance. They've already been scolded and told to go away and had insults hurled at them, but they're still kind of following after them in the distance. That's very different than pursuing because you've also seen little kids pursue older kids too. When they're actively running and chasing after them, that's a different a different feeling. It has a totally different meaning. So active pursuit. Now elsewhere in the Bible, this same word is used to describe the active pursuit of one army after another. There's another picture, totally different picture than just passively following. This is an active pursuit. God's goodness and mercy actively pursue me all the days of my life. The emphasis is God's abundant and perpetual provision and blessing. That's been the emphasis of this psalm. So in our context, that perpetual pursuit of God's provision and complete care for his children, that's what's in view here. And God pursues his children. He pursued us in, in terms of pursuing us before we even knew him. At, in the past, he pursued us to draw us to himself in terms of first tense salvation or being justified from the penalty of our sin. We see that even in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man 
has come, he came with a purpose. What was the purpose of the Son of Man, Jesus, coming? To seek and to save that which was lost. Now, certainly there's implications here as it relates to national Israel, but there's also personal implications here as it relates to individuals who Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He pursued us. He sought after us at a point in time in the past. He continues to do that in the present. Now, why would God have to seek after us at a point in time in the past? And the reason is because naturally we wanted nothing to do with him. Naturally, we weren't focused on him. Naturally, we weren't seeking after him. God has to seek after us. He has to pursue us because people don't naturally seek Him. And if you're thinking about that in the context of the past tense or in terms of the penalty of sin or justification, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Romans 3, 11 says that, but it also says in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only have we been unable to meet God's standards of what is right through our own human effort, through our religious rituals, through our human effort, but we didn't even care about Him. We weren't even seeking after Him, the Bible says. God didn't come to save the lovely. He didn't come to seek and to save those who were so attractive to Him. He didn't come to seek and to save those who were so desperately interested in Him because we were disinterested in Him. We were not seeking after God. It's only God and His desperate love for us that would cause Him to seek us out with the idea of saving us from the eternity that we deserved to spend separate from Him, the death that we deserved. See, the Bible says we were born in a pickle. We were born in a jam. We were born in a predicament. We were born alienated and estranged from God, described as his enemies, because we were associated with the sinfulness of the human race, the sinfulness of Adam. And because we were identified by birth and by choice with sinfulness, and God was described as perfectly holy and righteous, God being perfectly and holy and righteous, he could not have an intimate relationship with sinners unless something was done about sin. Our sin, if we came into proximity with him, would taint his holiness. One drop of sinfulness mixed with holiness taints the whole thing. And that's why it doesn't matter how much of a sinner you are. God says that all have fallen short of God's glory. Everyone has sinned. There's not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. He goes on to say, the prophet Isaiah says that even our best efforts at making ourselves right falls short of God and is viewed by him as dirty, filthy rags. That's not our efforts to do our own thing. That's not our rebellion against God. That's our righteous efforts that God views as filthy rags. So if that's what we have to bring to the table... If that's all that we have to offer God, and Paul has to conclude that I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. If that's what the Bible concludes about man's condition, then there's a real problem. 
Because you have this barrier of sin that is separating a sinful man of which every man, woman, and child on planet earth is identified. And this wall or barrier of sin separating them from God and his holiness. But thank God that the story doesn't end there. With that bad news of this predicament that mankind found themselves in. Thankfully, the story continues with God's plan to rescue or to redeem those who were estranged from him. And he did that, we know, through the person and work of his son, Jesus. So his plan was to deal with man's sinfulness and the debt that was owed for sin, which was death or eternal separation for God for all of eternity. He looked at that and he said, one of two things has to happen. Either they all have to die and remain forever separate from me as they pay the penalty for their own sin, as they satisfy the debt that they owe, they individually do that, or somebody else is going to have to die in their place. So now as you think about the Old Testament, as you think about all these pictures of innocent lambs and innocent animals dying in the place of the guilty, as you see the application of the blood to the doorposts of the home where inside the home it's filled with guilty sinners, but the blood is applied to the door and the angel of death passes over because the blood is applied, the blood has been shed, the substitution has taken place so that God isn't overlooking sin, but a substitute has died in the place of the guilty. And so as you think about God's plan of redemption, it involved the perfect, spotless Lamb of God coming to earth for a purpose to seek and to save those who were perishing. And as he saved them, he did that by dying in their place. He took the cross in your place. He died in your place. And he effectively hung on a cross on Calvary. And he said, I love you this much. But he wasn't dying for his sins. He wasn't dying for his guilt. He was dying for yours and for mine. He was seeking to take away that wall of partition, that barrier that was separating us from him by dying and paying the debt that was owed by every person on planet earth. And so as he died in our place, he said, it is finished. He said, all of your transgressions have now been blotted out. They've been nailed to the cross. That writ of debt that was against you has now been nailed to the cross because it's been satisfied by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So the question becomes, if God has already died to pay for the sins of the whole world, every single one of them, past, present, and future, what remains for me to do? What must I do to be saved? Is what the Philippian jailer says. And the, the, God, the Bible reveals to us the answer to that question is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have as a present possession everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that that the world through him could be saved. God, saviors are in the business of saving. But how do you get a hold of it? You have to accept it. You have to believe it. You have to trust in it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is to trust and accept and believe and put all of your confidence in something. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Gifts are freely given. Gifts have to be freely received. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So as Jesus speaks to his friend Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me will never die. Then he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's called childlike faith. It's faith that's supposed to be so simple because it excludes you and it puts all the focus on him. 
it takes people to confuse it. It takes people to say that Jesus did 99% of what needed to be done and now you must come along and do your part. It takes religion to say that Jesus accomplished 90% of what was needed, but now the church will take the last 10% and bring it across the finish line. It takes people who are desperate to have a part in this to say, it falls on me to finish what Jesus started. And friends, if that's your perspective this morning, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is characterized or encapsulated in Jesus' final words where he said, it is finished. It's been paid in full. The question is, will you accept what's already been done for you? So that's how God pursued us in the past. He actively chased after us with a sense of, there's none that's seeking me, so I'm going to have to seek them. But the same is true when it comes to Christian living. And that's the context of our psalm here. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue after me all the days of my life. This is written by a man of faith. This is written by a believer. But Jesus pursued David at a point in time in the past too, before he came to put his faith in God's provision for his sinfulness. But now David realizes that as God's child, as a man of faith, God is continuing to pursue and chase after him with his goodness and mercy, and he will continue to do that for all the days of his life. We see this in Philippians 2.21. The reason God has to keep pursuing after us with his goodness and mercy is because all seek their own. Not the things which are of Jesus Christ. Who is this written to? This was written by Paul to believers. As he writes to believers, he's saying that I have to, I'm going to send, I believe he's saying I'm going to send Timothy to visit with you and minister to you. I have to send Timothy, though I would prefer he stayed with me because he's been very useful as a partner with me in the ministry, but I have to send him to you because there's no one else I can send. He's writing this about believers. He's with believers and he's saying, I have to send Timothy because there is no one else. He's not saying there's no one else who's saved. He's not saying there's no one else who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying there's no one else who's presently and practically seeking after me and wanting to live their lives in a way that they could be a witness for me, a minister for me, an ambassador for me. And the reason is that all seek their own. By nature, even the Christian is susceptible to not trusting the Lord, to not keeping his eyes on him, to not have have a heavenly perspective, to not be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. The Christian is prone to getting distracted by all the flashing lights of the world around him. The Christian is prone to becoming self-centered and self-focused and self-righteous. And the result of that is that the Christian is not concerned in serving the Lord anymore. The Christian is all of a sudden just concerned in his own things and not the things of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in another passage, let everyone think also of the things and the affairs of others, not just their own things. Why? Because naturally that's what we default to. So that's why God had to be following after us, pursuing us with his goodness and mercy. But how long is he going to do that for? All the days of my life. Pretty straightforward reference to the rest of his lifetime. We have this word all again. It's an absolute term. It reinforces that God's, the goodness and mercy that are being described here have to be divine. If it was human beings that were providing the goodness and mercy, if we were responsible for the, mercy and, uh, the goodness and mercy that we're pursuing after us in our own lives, that wouldn't work because we are never consistent with anything. So it has to be God who's ultimately the one who is going to consistently provide for this in our lives because we're too unreliable and too irregular for this to be human source. This has to be sourced in the divine. 
And that's what we see with all the days of my life. There's this confident expectation again because it's God that's the one who's doing this. Next phrase, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So surely goodness and mercy, certainly that's going to pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now there seem to be present and future implications to this phrase. Present and future. There's some debate about even what this phrase is referring to. I would say there's more debate about this than any other part of the psalm probably in terms of is this future looking? Is this present focused? Is this referring, what does the house of the Lord refer to? Uh, We're going to go through it without going into all the debate about it. You can look at it more if you want. I see present and future implications in this phrase. On one hand, there is certainly a present tense application here in terms of the believer's desire to experience intimate fellowship in this life, in time, with the Lord. And so if going into God's tent is this picture of intimacy, it's this picture of relationship, it's this picture of having his presence or spending time with him, sitting down at his table, sharing a meal with him, dining with him, then in that sense, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, that is something that would be aspirational or something that a believer would want to do or should want to do in the rest of this life. In time. But on the other hand, the phrase seems to contrast this word forever with the days of this life. See, forever has more connection to eternity than all the days of my life shall follow me all the days of my life. That's talking about the rest of this life. Now, he could just be repeating that uh, and continuing on with that thought about how he wants to spend the rest of his days. And that's part of the issue is that that word forever can also be translated as end of day, or yeah, rest of days till the end of days is what it actually that's what it, what it was but there's also this eternal perspective to forever that is found in other uses of the same word in other passages so it could go either way i i see both i think both interpretations have merit and they, they both represent vital spiritual truths, meaning you definitely want to be looking forward to the eternity that you're going to spend in the Father's house. We'll talk about that in a second. But the Christian is also presently focused on experiencing intimate fellowship with the Father in time too, in the place where he is, and we'll get to that. So I love how this starts with and. So surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life and. And wouldn't you say if this was a commercial or one of these... Uh, what do they call them? Yeah, infomercials, where you would say, but wait, there's more. And that's how this feels. Like, that wasn't good enough, that goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of life, but there's more. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here we have the word I. I'm only just going to mention it here in passing. That's the 27th and final personal pronoun in this psalm. 27. That's how many times there was the psalmist using this language of this very personal and intimate relationship with God. You can have that kind of a relationship with him. But we got to move on. Will dwell. I will dwell. There's that certainty again. The word can be translated as return or turn back to. I will return to the house of the Lord forever. I will turn back to the house of the Lord. Now, whether this is temporal or eternal, where the believer will reside is critical. The certainty of the language favors the eternal residence application unless you take will as aspirational. So I will dwell. Now, if you're saying that I will dwell there forever, 
there's such certainty in that that you would say, well, that can't be a reflection of present Christian living in our, in our day, uh, a present walk of faith, in, as if we were going to say it in David's time. That can't be a reflection of that because David, of all people, knows full well that he has been trusting God at times. He's been doing his own thing at times. He's been letting the Lord direct in his life. He's been doing his own thing. He's been drawing nearer to the Lord or, or having a heart that puts his focus back on God and what God can do for him. And there's other times where he's been wallowing. There's been times where he's been doing his own thing. So he can't very well be confidently saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever if it's talking about present faith walk or present faith living because he knows that hasn't been true and it won't be true in his life. Yet on the other hand, you could easily take the position that he's saying this as an aspirational way of saying, I will dwell, I desire to dwell, I want to dwell, that that's what he means by will. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now remember, the immediate context is he's been just talking about being in the tent or the living space or the living quarters of the king of kings. The loving, the loving host. He's been the beloved guest. And he's saying, I want to stay there. Now he's still alive. I want to stay there perpetually. I want to keep spending my time and my days there. Now as I go about maybe my day, I want to always make sure that I'm ending that in his tent. Eating at his table. Spending time with him. Having him anointing my head and filling my cup. I want that to be perpetually True. I tend to think it favors the certainty of the language. I think it, it, it's, it favors contrasting the days of my life with forever. And I think the certainty, I, I believe both are true. I, I believe David's goal and objective and aspiration was to remain where God is. But I, I do think the primary application here is on the eternity side of it, the heaven side of it. But we'll get to that here with House of the Lord. I will dwell... I will reside, I will return back to, I will return to eventually the house of the Lord. Now, Lord here forms a bookend because that's how the psalm started. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, God's personal name, is used here again. Now, as I said, there's several different interpretations about what the house of the Lord is referring to. I think you have to go beyond the context of the psalm, though, to bring out some of the ones that others have in terms of that this is a reference to the temple. I don't think that's the case myself because I think that would be a leap from the context. The immediate context is on a personal walk with the Lord. It's on the intimate provision and complete care of the shepherd for his sheep, of the host for his guest. So I think that would represent a a jump in context if that's what we were going to do. But again, that's not really the focus. The focus isn't where the house is. The focus is on who's in the house. So don't get hung up on that. Regardless of whether it's the, the temple or it's the present resting place of the tabernacle, tabernacle or it's just a, a, a reference to the place where God is. That's how I take it. So if you have a straightforward explanation and it's a literal explanation from the text in front of you or it, it's a flowing from the context that you're already in, I don't see any reason to dig deeper than that. So from my perspective, there's no reason to see this as anything more than a reference to the place that God is and the associated 
and accompanying blessings, communion, protection, direction, provision, and sanctuary that comes from being where God is, that comes from being close to Him, close to where He's at. And so that's my take on it. And it can have a temporal and an eternal aspect to it. On the temporal aspect, if you're talking about having this aspiration of wanting to spend the rest of your time or all of your time in the place where God is, you would say that the emphasis for this psalm has been God's present care for his children. So it would make sense. But the last illustration, it was focused on present fellowship with God as the generous and gracious host. So David understood, regardless of how you look at it, he understood the importance of present fellowship with the Lord. And so I will dwell, my goal or my desire is to dwell in the place where God is in fellowship with him, the place where he is protecting, directing, and guiding, and blessing, and being abundant with his provision for my life. That's sort of how you could think about it in the temporal sense. But now in the eternal sense, there seems to be, that seems to be the contrast here, is that he's saying, for the days of my life, I'm going to be pursued by God's goodness and mercy, but in the future, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The difference between forever and the all days of my life. Now, there's some debate It's hard to have a full understanding of what Old Testament saints like David understood about the concept of eternally living with the Lord. But I wanted to show you at least one passage. The oldest book in the Bible is Job. Here's what Job says. They certainly had an understanding that there was an eternity to be had after this life and that it would be in God's presence or or that that was what he was looking forward to. He says, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So that's what I believe David's focused on here too, is the fact that at the end of this life, after all the days of my life have expired, that I will, my future, is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, regardless of what he understood, or what even you might understand, the Father's house is every believer's final destination. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever if you've put your faith in Him. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither will any of them be plucked from my hand. As you're thinking about that confidence that I can have, that knowing, knowing that God is a promise-keeping God, then I can have this perspective that I will dwell in my Father's house forever. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It says, In my Father's house, John 14, 2, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, Jesus says, to prepare a place for you to his followers. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will dwell. I will come again. Same kind of definite language. And receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's the focus. It, you don't have to get hung up in the details. That's the focus. I want to be where he is. I want to be where he is in this life. I want to dwell and reside and set up my residence where he is for all of eternity. Both of them are necessary. Both of them are fixed truths. Both of them are absolutely critical to the Christian to know that in this life I want to spend it with him where he's at, residing with him, dwelling with him, receiving, being the beneficiary of his complete care for me. But in the future, I'm going to get to do that and be with him 
in the place that he's gone to prepare for me for all of eternity. Then we have that word forever. Again, there can be present and future aspects to this word. word. The remaining days of life are certainly a part of forever, as is time eternal. So the mentality that is communicated by verse 6 it corresponds with spiritual maturity. If you read this to yourself, say this aloud to yourself, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you sense the confidence in that, then you're going to see that that is the perspective or the attitude or the mentality associated with spiritual maturity. That was true of the summary statement in verse 1 too. You would never say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing if you weren't confident in your faith. If you weren't convinced that God can be depended upon, that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy. You see, the immature believer cannot fathom God's care, compassion, and concern for him. He questions whether the Lord's house really is the best place to be. I hope that's not you. I hope you're not here this morning wondering, is the Lord's house, is the house of the Lord the best place to be right now? Is the Lord's house the best place to spend eternity? I hope you're not questioning that. Where he is, is the best place to be. That's what makes heaven so great. That's what makes this life so great when we're living life with him, when we're drawing near to him. What's so great about fellowship with him is that it's where he is. It's spending life with him. It's living with him and knowing that in the future, I can go and live with him for all of eternity. Has this psalm convinced you that as God's child, you lack nothing? Are you convinced that you have no need for fear, you have no need for worry, that you can be comforted in every moment and every trial of this life knowing that he is with you, that he'll provide for you, that he'll protect you, that he'll direct you, that he will discipline you, that he'll correct you, I guess, in that sense, that he's lovingly caring for his own. Not a little bit, but completely. I hope that was encouraging. This morning now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, if that's how you know it. Communion is just an opportunity for a group of believers to celebrate what Jesus Christ did for them as he died in their place on Calvary. There's lots of churches that celebrate communion. They do it in a lot of different ways. There's no magic formula to it. The Bible tells us that we're to do this in a way that remembers him or as a way of remembering him. It says as often as you do this. It doesn't even tell us how often to do it. But he says as often as you do it, do it as a remembrance of me. So that's why we do it here in our church. There's nothing special about it in the sense that there's nothing mystical about it. This isn't how one becomes God's child. A person becomes God's child by putting his faith in the finished work of Jesus. So then if you are God's child, this is an opportunity to celebrate, be intentional about reflecting on what Jesus Christ did for you. Now as you think about what he did for you, you're reminded of what? You're reminded of his love for you. As you're reminded of his love for you, you should be reminded of his care for you. As you're reminded of his care for you, that should give you comfort in the storms in life that you're facing. And that's why we always could never hear enough about the story of Jesus and his love. That's why the song says, I love to tell the story, to be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And that's what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So there's nothing mystical to it. The grape juice that we drink, it represents, it pictures 
the Lord's death until he comes. The wafers that we use, these little unleavened wafers, they don't even taste that good. But they're a picture of his body that was broken for us. We're to eat those in remembrance of him and how his body was broken for us. So again, some people have been raised in, in traditions, Christian traditions, where a lot more is put into this, where uh, they, they see that this, they add more to it than what it's intended to be. This isn't the thing that makes you spiritual. This isn't the thing that makes you saved. This is just the thing that people who are saved do when they are spiritual in an effort to remember what Jesus Christ has done for them. At this time, I'll ask the elders to come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Take a moment, if you will, to kind of think about and prepare your heart so that you're doing this in a worthy manner where you actually are remembering Him as you're doing this. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. There's no reason not to. Today is the day of salvation, and it comes by simple faith and accepting what He has already done for you.